0: All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. Major theme in the book of Zephaniah that we're beginning today is the theme of the day of the Lord. This is also a major theme in the book of 1 Thessalonians in a different sense and yet it's the same day. We'll talk about it a little more in the sermon, but for now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. just as you are doing. Amen. We're going to turn to our text, the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1. This is four books before the end of the Old Testament. They're in the heart of the Minor Prophets. Alright? Zephaniah, chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors who are no more, all who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord in the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> In the news recently, there have been some stories about some major insurance companies saying they're going to pull out of covering houses in Florida. Some of the reasons for this are complicated. Uh, But part of it is not. Part of it has to do with the fact that you get a lot of hurricanes in Florida, and so it's a risky place to insure houses. And you may remember last year when Hurricane Ian came through, if you were following the news online, you might have come across some of those before and after images from some of the hardest hit places like Sanibel Island. Um, some of the pictures will have these little sliders on them. You can drag back and forth and be an aerial or satellite image of the same location but at two different points in time, one before and one after the storm. And on the left side, you can see all of these buildings, vegetation, this nice normal beachside community. And then you slide the slider over. And in the same place where there had been, say, a small housing development, now there's nothing. It's just mud. Everything has been utterly swept away. I wonder how you might live differently today if you knew... That tomorrow, State College Pennsylvania was going to be wiped off the map, just gone. Penn State, you know, Bryce Jordan Center, Beaver Stadium, dorms, just gone. Your neighborhood, no houses, no apartments. Not just that though, you stand there where your house had been the day before and you listen and you don't hear anything. You don't hear any birds. You don't hear any spring peepers. You don't hear any cicadas buzzing in the woods. There's nothing left. It's an utterly empty landscape. That's the kind of future that Zephaniah is calling on the people of Judah to imagine here at the beginning of his prophecy. Uh, which we're going to take up this chapter in three parts today. The first one being the end of the world, verses 1 through 6. Number two will be a different kind of sacrifice, verses 7 to 13. And then number three will be the good news about the bad news. The end of the world, a different kind of sacrifice and the good news about the bad news. Let's get our bearings first with verse 1. Um, and notice that we're actually going backwards in time a little bit here. Okay, So last week we wrapped up Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, you remember, prophesied during the reign of King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was one of the sons of King Josiah. Okay? Now verse 1 here says that this prophecy comes during king Josiah's reign, before Josiah is killed in battle. Okay, So Zephaniah then fits chronologically a little bit before Habakkuk. Now we also find here an unusually long list of this particular prophet's ancestors. And many people think the reason for this is that the Hezekiah mentioned there, this prophet's great-great grandfather, is actually king Hezekiah. Um, and so, if that's the case, and it probably is, this is telling us, uh, this genealogy is here to, to, to emphasize that this prophet is part of the extended royal family. Now, King Josiah, who's on the throne at this point, was actually a very good king, uh, comparatively, as he's described in Second Kings and Second Chronicles very godly king. Um, It's under King Josiah that uh, the priests uh, rediscovered the book of the law in the temple after a long period of severe idolatry all through the land for many years under some wicked kings, including his father Ammon. Um, It's under Josiah then that in response to the rediscovery of this book of the law, the Idols are destroyed throughout the land. The religious high places for the worship of false gods and other kinds of false worship were demolished and desecrated, even. Um, Judah kept the Passover again after a long period of neglecting that practice. But, sadly, that Reformation, which I think is a good word for it, really a a Reformation uh, that Josiah was leading, um, ended up being very short-lived. Very shortly after Josiah's death, when he gets killed by the king of Egypt, his, his sons uh, actually went back to the old practices of false worship. And Josiah, as it turns out, was in fact the last good king of Judah, not very many years before the Babylonian invasion and captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem and everything. So apparently, Josiah did not manage to change the hearts of the people of Judah, broadly speaking, for all of those outward reforms that he led kind of from the top down. And this helps explain, I think, why there is a prophecy that sounds so dire, so negative uh, during the reign of someone we think of as one of Judah's best, most godly kings. It's because the king's godliness, in this case didn't really represent where the nation as a whole was, and there were a lot of people in Judah and Jerusalem who were still keeping up more and more reasons for that covenant curse to fall on them and on their land in the not-so-distant future. And these are the people that Zephaniah is prophesying against in this book. Um, Although it's important to say, there also would have been people who were listening to this prophecy in faith who were paying attention to it, the people who were still loyal to the Lord, the people who shared Josiah's heart for faithfulness to the covenant and for reformation in the land, the people who were um, uh, paying attention to God's prophet. And those kinds of people would be hearing this book, not with um, denial, not dismissing it in anger, getting mad at what he's saying, like many people in Judah might have, They would be listening with reverence. They'd be listening with seriousness, with believing and repentant hearts. And that's where we want to take our place, okay? So we want to think about this context of many different kinds of people in Judah, many things going on, um, and many different kinds of possible reactions to this book. And we want to take our place with those (coughs) repentant, believing, humble listeners in Judah and Jerusalem, that faithful remnant, as it's often described who are earnestly listening to the Word of God, even when the message that he bears in his day and time comes across as overwhelmingly bad news for the place where they're living and the people that they're living among. Zephaniah doesn't waste any time of getting to the point, because in verse 2, there's this opening sort of thesis statement, or salvo, where the Lord says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. So we could we could think of uh, this book as like a, a painting. If you think of it as a painting, what's the canvas that this prophecy is being painted on? How big is the canvas? Oh, the reason I bring this up is the canvas is not just Jerusalem-sized. It's not just Judah-sized. It's not just big enough to take in the near-term historical events that are just about to take place in the next few decades. The prophetic canvas here that Zephaniah is painting on is big enough to take in the whole world and the whole timeline of history. So Zephaniah starts here with the, the biggest, broadest possible statement of God's ultimate intention with regard to the whole world, all things. And the idea is that what's about to happen to Judah when Babylon invades is part of that cosmic, worldwide, History encompassing plan of God that stretches to the very end of the world. It's a little bit difficult, but let's think about it a little more. What is the relationship between God's judgment on Judah in the 6th century BC and the end of the world? Obviously, the world didn't end in 586 when Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon. Although there's a a sense in which the world was ending for the people who endured that judgment. See, what's happening here is that God is describing the coming destruction of Jerusalem in terms of using the imagery of the end of the world. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's very similar to what I was talking about last time from Habakkuk chapter 3. Last time... Those the other direction. Habakkuk was describing what was about to happen in terms of using the vocabulary of things from Israel's past. Okay, the Exodus and the conquest, Mount Sinai, and so on. Well, this is a very similar kind of thing, except that Zephaniah is turning in the other direction. He's facing forward to the future, the final future, what some people might call the end times. And he's describing the destruction of Jerusalem in terms of, using the vocabulary of, that future climactic event. And so, God's judgment in history against Judah relates to that judgment at the end of history in a couple of important ways. First, we could say it's a preview of that final judgment. but It's not just a preview. Actually, it is also a piece of that final judgment. It is like a piece of the end times really breaking into the history of Judah at this juncture in time. What's about to happen in Judah is going to picture for us well, something of what the final judgment will be like when Christ returns. But again, it's not just a picture. What's about to come on Judah is in a very real sense that end time judgment of God being brought to bear against Judah now. Now, in a temporary and a partial way in history, before the end of the world, at this place in time, but it is that end-time judgment of God that is coming in covenant curse against his people at this, at this moment. Okay, so let's look back at the text and see how this plays out. So verses 2 and 3, you can see, are, they're worldwide in scope. They're describing the end of the world. Utterly sweeping away everything from the face of the earth. But then verses 4 to 6 go on to show that this is also about what God is about to do in part with Judah and Jerusalem. There's something O. Palmer Robertson notices here, which is that the list of the creatures in verse 3, notice that it's in reverse order from the creation from the way that God created the world. It's like the world is being uncreated, unmade. That's what the judgment is like. It's frequently how the judgment is described in different places in the prophets. So in the beginning, you remember how God formed and filled the formless and empty world. Well, now what is God doing? He is emptying the world that he once filled. That's the big picture, the biggest possible picture, that huge universe and history-wide canvas describing the judgment of God on the world. But then verses 4 to 6 bring it to bear locally and specifically on Judah at this moment in history. And as we go on in verse 4, it's important to see that God is not just against Judah kind of evil in the abstract, evil as a force or in general as an idea. God is going to judge and remove, cleanse away the particular evils, the specific evils that are taking shape in Judah right now. I will cut off from this place, he says, the remnant of Baal, the name of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens. It's people worshiping the planets and stars and so on. Uh, who People who try to divide their worship between the Lord and other gods. These people, he says, have turned away, turned back from following the Lord, and they're not seeking the Lord or inquiring of Him anymore. And that's the heart of the matter. That is the basic reason why Judah is going to suffer this catastrophic covenant judgment. It's because people aren't following the Lord anymore. They're not seeking Him, and they've divided their loyalty between the Lord and other gods, which means they're not loyal to Him at all. Okay, so that's verses 1 through 6. Now, verse 7 develops this whole idea by introducing a very important phrase. It's when we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Be silent before the Lord God. Remember that from Habakkuk 2. Silence before the judgment falls. Well, be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, really, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is a great way of summing up what I was just describing from the first six verses. The day of the Lord is the day of God's end-time judgment. That's the day of the Lord. It is the great day of the Lord's end-time judgment, um, and in other places, salvation as well, day of judgment and salvation, although that's not not really in focus here, so we're just going to stick with judgment to keep it simple. Okay, so it's the day of God's end-time judgment. And yet, when you read the prophets, you can see that the day of the Lord doesn't come just one time at the end of history. That's the ultimate day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord also has instances in history along the way. The destruction of Jerusalem is going to be the day of the Lord in a very real sense. It's both and, not either or. And so this day of the Lord locally in time is, again, like we were saying earlier, it is both a preview and a piece of the ultimate day of the Lord at the end of history. Um, Sometimes people will describe this as an already-not-yet reality. So there's an already aspect to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming now in the 500s B.C., okay? It has already come when Jerusalem is destroyed. But there's also a not yet aspect to the day of the Lord. Its final, its ultimate arrival is yet future. So that day of the Lord that comes against Jerusalem is pointing beyond itself to a greater day of the Lord that's yet to come. All right. So here, Zephaniah describes the day of the Lord in a kind of unusual way. I think it's very striking. He describes it as a day where God has prepared a special sacrifice. Now that's a little odd, isn't it? You don't usually hear of God preparing a sacrifice. Sometimes you do, but it's, it's unusual because the, the sacrifices we're used to hearing about are the ones that the people offered to the Lord. So the people prepare them to offer to God. But here God is the one offering this sacrifice. And notice that he is not offering an animal sacrifice. What is on the altar here? What is in the place of the sacrificial animal in this case? It's Judah. It's Jerusalem. They are the sacrifice. See, in the law of Moses, the sacrifices represented, among other things, the penalty for sin, death as the penalty for sin. But of course, the point of so many of those sacrifices was that God was providing a substitute to endure that penalty. That for for those who were living by faith in his promises, God was not going to require their blood. He wasn't going to require their death, but instead he was going to provide someone else to take their place on that altar so that they might live. But you see what's happened here is that Judah has rejected that provision of God for them haven't been loyal to the Lord. They haven't been walking by faith in the promises of God. They've stopped seeking him. They've turned away. And what's the result? The result is that for them now, there is no substitute. There's no one to take their place. The covenant curses are about to fall on them directly and personally. Now they are on the altar. They are the sacrifice that God is preparing. This is very weighty, very tragic. Notice in verse 8 how um, specific and broad and deep this judgment goes. It's going to include the king's sons. That's literally going to be true. It's interesting, he doesn't mention the king. Remember, Josiah is actually the one who's working against trying to turn back the tide. Um, But as it turns out, his sons are not going to do the same. Um it includes also the people in foreign clothing. Does that mean it's wrong to wear like, imported clothes? Don't you know, wear European fashion. No, it's, 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 foreign clothing represents these people who have brought in the, these foreign religious practices. They brought in idolatry into Judah from outside, and the clothing is a piece of that. Um, everyone who leaps over the threshold... Uh, so that strikes you probably as a little bit odd, and it's it's not exactly certain what it means. There are a couple options, but I think the most likely one is that this is a superstition that's associated with pagan worship. Now, you know, some baseball players won't step on the baseline when they go back to the dugout in between innings because it's bad luck or something. But in First Samuel chapter five, there's a place where it describes how the priests of the false god Dagon would not step on the threshold of the temple. Um, as part one of their superstitions, because of something that happened in the history there in that chapter. Um, but again, it's it's these idolatrous practices that Zephaniah is speaking against. Um, verse 12 is very striking. Um, it's a reminder that there are a number of people in Judah at this time who don't really believe in all the doom and gloom of the prophets. They're saying, ah, oh, the Lord's not going to do anything. Nothing good or bad. Things are just, things are just going to keep going on the way they always have been. Why should we think that anything is going to change? It hasn't changed yet. Why should we think that things are going to change in the future? This calls to mind for me Second Peter chapter three. In Second Peter three, Peter says that many people take the same attitude today towards the final judgment, towards the ultimate day of the Lord. Peter says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But they're deliberately overlooking, Peter says, the facts about what God has done in the past in very similar situations when people thought nothing was going to change. And then what happened? It's great catastrophes of judgment. And he talks about the flood, a prime example of this, where everything was swept away, again, to use Zephaniah's language, in that case, by water. And then Peter goes on, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up, not for water, but for fire, he says, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. See, the New Testament views the second coming of Jesus and the end of history very much in terms of using the vocabulary and imagery of the great judgments of God from the Old Testament as described by the prophets. And the point of those New Testament passages for God's people is very similar to Zephaniah's point for those who will listen to him in Judah of his day. Don't think for a minute that that just because the judgment hasn't come yet, that it's not going to come at all. Don't get complacent. Don't lose your focus. Don't start to live... As though the day of the Lord isn't really coming or as though that day doesn't matter for you. Because it is one thing in all of this changing and uncertain world that is truly certain. That is truly fixed. That there will come a time when all of this is coming to an end. Everything that you see around you. A great conclusion. Where it's all going to be swept away. And you need to be ready for that. See, the world that you and I live in gives this illusion of permanence. How could things possibly be any different from the way they are now? So we're tempted to think. See, that sense of permanence you get from the, way, the world the way it is now It is an illusion. It is all temporary. None of it is going to last forever because the day of the Lord is coming. And you do not want to be caught kind of flat-footed and unprepared when it does because you've been living in denial. You don't want to meet that day with your relationship to God in doubt. Am I living by faith in the promises of God? Am I trusting in that, that sacrifice, that substitute that God has provided for me? Am I living my life now for the things that are being, going to be swept away? Or for the things that will last forever? The things that will last beyond this life. When the things that I take for granted in this world are all swept away. Verses 14 to 18 this last section, they go on to describe that coming day of the Lord with great vividness, great urgency, this day of wrath and distress and anguish and devastation and darkness and gloom and clouds and thick darkness and trumpet blast and battle cry. And Zephaniah makes a point that nothing you can accumulate around you in this life to, to reinforce your safety and your comfort None of that will be able to help you when that day comes. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them, he says, when the earth is consumed. And God makes a full and sudden end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Again, taking that local and temporary judgment on Judah, expanding the, the Zoom again to take in the whole creation. Now, you might be thinking, this is a pretty gloomy sermon. It's exhausting, all of this judgment. And we'd be done soon with all this negativity about some good news. Well, first of all, don't jump too quickly to wanting relief from the bad news. Um, God has put Zephaniah in the Bible for a reason not just for Judah and Jerusalem in their day, but for us, to warn us, to sober us, as Paul describes in First Thessalonians, you have to understand that it is gracious and good and even kind of God to, not to leave us in our complacency. Just like it would be, it would be right and kind for you to yell really loud at somebody on the train tracks if there was an oncoming train and they needed to get out of the way so their lives could be saved. And so even these hard words of judgment are good for the people of God to hear. But I also do want us to see together this morning that there is good news even in the bad news of this chapter in two ways. First is the way this chapter gives you a picture of the most vivid there is of the judgment that we deserve but that we haven't gotten because of Christ. This chapter describes sinners very much like you and I are. You and I have sinned against the Lord, verse 17. You see, the Lord hasn't placed us on that sacrificial altar. He has not made us the sacrifice. He has provided someone else to take our place. Let me ask you this. On the cross, do you know what Jesus was experiencing as he was crucified? He was experiencing the day of the Lord. In fact, the cross is the ultimate preview and the ultimate piece of that final judgment that you can find in history. Everything that Zephaniah describes here, the distress and the anguish, the ruin and the devastation and the darkness and the gloom, the thick darkness, that's what fell on Jesus on the cross as he took your place on the altar as he suffered that day of the Lord that you and I deserved so that we could be spared the judgment and gloom and disaster of that day so that we would not be swept away by the coming judgment that is good news for the people of God. And there's one other way. There's one other way that this chapter has good news in the bad news that it delivers. Yes, it is sobering to hear that everything is going to be swept away and the world wiped clean. And apart from Christ, it is a terrifying thought. But you know what that means for the people of God when you think about it in terms of Christ's return. When you look ahead, as Zephaniah is doing to the end of history, Think about this. Christ is coming to wipe the world clean. Christ is coming to wipe the world clean. That is definitely good news for God's people. And it is good news for the creation as a whole. See, we would not want a world, would we, where where the sin and the evil and the corruption that fills it now just were going to linger forever, where they were going to be permanent and never pass away. And that's why for those who belong to Jesus, it is a comfort, a comfort in Revelation, that in the new creation it says, no longer will there be anything accursed. Nothing unclean, it says, will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why? Because the day of the Lord has come. And all of the evil has been utterly swept away forever. So that nothing remains but the goodness and beauty and holiness of the Lord coming to life in his people, transformed into the image of Christ for eternity. That is good news. And so I hope that on hearing Zephaniah's prophecy, we will be both shaken and comforted shaken out of our complacency but comforted by knowing that that judgment has fallen on Christ already for us and that when he comes again this cleansing of creation is going to be not for our destruction but for our good in him. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven thank you for giving us the prophet Zephaniah. Lord, help us to heed these warnings and also to be comforted by this promise of your coming. We ask that the Lord Jesus would come quickly and that we would be ready for his coming. We ask this in his name. Amen.